Well, every Monday morning. Welcome to episode 69 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. This episode is the Labor Day special. Yes, indeed. Another holiday special for you. This time we're going to be talking about the history of Labor Day. Why do we have a Labor Day in the United States and also in Canada? How did Labor Day come to be as a holiday? Those are very good questions, and I do aim to answer those questions in this episode. There is also a ton of great music and songs in this episode, and you guessed it, the songs are all related to work, labor, kind of the plight of the worker, that kind of thing. The song before I started talking at the very, very beginning and is playing right now in the background is a version of a song about John Henry. And this song is also known as The Ballad of John Henry. This version of the song was performed by Arthur Bell in 1939. Also, this version of the John Henry song is called a hammer song, which is to say it's meant to be sung while you're working, especially if you're like swinging a hammer. What hammer songs do, they kind of set the pace, the rhythm of working. You're swinging your hammer along to the beat of the song, that kind of thing. Now, why? Because if you didn't pace yourself when you were doing really heavy, gnarly manual labor, like hammering railroad spikes in, that kind of thing, you would die. You would fucking die. And based on the folklore, the folk tale of John Henry, he did die. Oh, shit. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that. If you don't know the story of John Henry, I'm going to tell you that real, real quick. John Henry was a freed slave who worked for the railroad and was very, very proud of his work and the speed with which he was able to work. Along comes steam power, right? A steam-powered rock drill to dig a tunnel through a mountain for the railroad. John Henry says, I can dig a tunnel faster than any machine. And at the very end, John Henry does win the race, but he dies from working himself too hard. He worked himself to death. Kind of a cautionary tale, right? Don't work yourself to death. It's kind of pointless. That's my takeaway from it. There's a certain amount of pride in that story as well. John Henry had a lot of pride in his abilities, but in the end, it ended up killing him. Now, the good thing about the legend of John Henry, because those were kind of negative things that I just said, right? The really good thing about the legend of John Henry is he was one of the very first figures in any kind of American folk tale or history that showed a black person in a good and a positive light. So that's great. John Henry took pride in his work. He was a super hard worker. He beat this impossible race against this machine. But very sadly, at the end, he does work himself to death. Good story, right? Now, here's the thing. John Henry might actually have been a real person. There have been several investigations into whether or not the folk tale or legend of John Henry is somewhat based in fact. One of those investigations led to a person who was named John Henry, who was also a former slave, but he was convict labor on a railroad and he died while he was working on the railroad. Long story short, John Henry could have been a real person. The folk tale, I'm sure, is kind of like a tall tale in some ways, but it's possible he was a prisoner who was forced to do slave labor on a railroad. That does fall in line with the way that black people were treated in the United States after they were, quote unquote, freed from slavery. There could be something to it. John Henry symbolizes 
working hard. In my ideal world, here's what would have happened with that folktale, okay? John Henry wouldn't have died working his ass off. He would have been recognized for his incredible worth ethic, promoted a foreman, directed the machines that dug the tunnels with wages high enough to buy a nice home and live very well, several weeks of vacation time a year, several paid holidays, had 100% medical insurance covered, and a 100% pay pension plan to be able to live out his golden years in comfort, happiness, and joy. Ah, uh, dreams. Yes, it's, it's good to have dreams. It is nice to have dreams. Here's reality for you. Did you know today the average worker, the average blue-collar worker in the United States of America in 2020 makes around $32,895 a year? That comes out to $15.81 an hour for a 40-hour work week. That doesn't include what gets taken out of that pay in taxes, medical insurance, retirement plans, if you're lucky enough to have one of those mythical retirement plans in 2020, yeah. That doesn't leave you with much. After taxes and any other deductions, that comes out to about 400 bucks a week, take-home pay. Let me just put that amount of money in perspective for you for a second. For a family of three, like my family, $400 is around what it would cost to get in for one day at Disneyland. That's just to get in. That doesn't include food, parking, gas to get there and back, you know, souvenirs, toy shit for the kid, absolutely nothing extra. 400 bucks just to get through the gate and spend the day in Disneyland. Also, another perspective type of thing here, the average rent in the neighborhood that I live in for a two-bedroom condo is somewhere around $2,200 a month. Do that fucking math. 400 bucks a week take-home pay. If I had to pay all that rent by myself, I'd still be short $600. That doesn't count food, clothing, electric, gas, and no no other necessities whatsoever. Let me be clear, though, real quick, too. I started kind of sifting through all these numbers about how much money people in the United States make in different professions, like blue-collar versus white-collar, that kind of thing. It's really tricky, and it would take a lot of analyzing to get it to where... I would feel comfortable presenting it in some ways. I don't want to get bogged down with all that kind of thing. And it's kind of beside the point of what I'm talking about here because I'm talking about kind of the labor movement and Labor Day and the history of Labor Day. So I'm not going to focus too much on the money thing. But I do want to say one more thing about the money thing. What do you think the median income is in the United States in the year 2020? This stat is according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics the median weekly income of people in the United States was around $1,000 per week in 2020. Now, black people, women, Latinx people made less than that on average. People of Asian heritage, Asian descent, that type of thing, made more than that $1,000 a week, closer to around $1,300 of the median income figure. Now, what median means middle. That statistic, it's kind of like an average. You take a set of data, like how much people earn, right? Median is that very middle number between the highest and lowest number. This income is from all types of jobs, from the lowest to the very highest. Somebody working a minimum wage job versus a CEO who makes millions of dollars a year. So this isn't really a very accurate representation of how much most people in the United States make per week kind of thing, a thousand bucks, right? For 
a white man. And that also doesn't include blue collar versus white collar. It's not a very specific figure. It is an interesting figure that I thought I should mention location where you live, your race, your sex, all that changes the data. I'm comfortable with what I said earlier about blue collar workers making around 32 grand a year or whatever. That's the group that I'm the most interested in talking about in this episode. And we will. I just kind of wanted to throw that median income figure out there. Uh, really just to confuse the whole fucking issue. No, I just kind of wanted to put it out there to say, look, you know, this is what they say the average person or the median income in the United States is. That's a lot fucking higher than your average wage of a blue collar or like labor type of job, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot fucking higher. It seems to me 400 bucks a week. The median income figure is about twice as high as what the average is for your average blue-collar worker in the United States. And that's fucked. That's really, really fucked. Have blue-collar workers always been fucked in the United States as far as how their wages were, the working conditions that they worked under, on and on and on? We're going to get to that. We are going to get to that in a little bit. This is how this episode's going to go. Music. Let's talk about the music for a minute. The music is such a big part of this episode. Think about this. How many songs do you love that are like your favorite songs that talk about work, about jobs, especially about shitty jobs in particular? If you're like me, you've had your share of shitty jobs through the year and might even have one now. I hope you don't. I hope your job is fucking fantastic and you absolutely love it. Those songs about shitty jobs, having a shitty day at work, or just, you know, like nine to five, just fucking plugging away. Those type of songs really do speak to me, especially songs of the punk rock variety that talk about work. You're going to hear those types of songs in this episode, punk songs about work. Also, for a second, think about how many songs there are out there that are about work and not even punk songs, right? Take this job and shove it. Nine to five, fuck Dolly Parton. Working for a Living by Huey Lewis in the News. Do you remember that? Working for a Living. That's a terrible Huey Lewis impersonation, by the way. That is a classic working song, though, right? It is Working for a Living. I fucking love it. Working for the Weekend. Talk about your mega classic work song. Loverboy it hit a home run with that song. However, they were kind of like a one-hit wonder, right? I don't remember shit from Loverboy other than that one Working for the Weekend song. That's it. Okay, well, fuck. Whatever. The songs that are in this episode, by the way, are all handpicked by me. They don't include any of those big, mega, popular, mainstream work songs. But after hearing this episode, maybe you're going to come away from this with a new favorite song about work. I hope you do. Definitely. I did. I definitely did. So the first song on the episode, like I said earlier, was by Arthur Bell, and he was performing The Ballad of John Henry. Very good. Perfect start to this episode all about work and labor and also a cautionary tale about working too hard, in some ways working yourself to death. Throughout the rest of the episode, continuing to the very end, are going to be four more songs by these bands and people. Billy Liar has two songs in this episode. The Drowns, a fucking great song about work, and Chicks Dig It. Do you remember Chicks Dig It? They're f- I fucking love Chicks Dig It, especially in the late 90s. I'm going to say a little bit about each band and or person either before or after the song gets played. Why don't we do one of my favorite things to do in any episode right now? Yes, it's time for the... Yeah. 
Fear of the episode. This week's beer of the episode is the Totally Radler by Plan 9 Ale House. It is a 2.5% lager and lemonade mix. Oh, that sounds interesting. Almost like a shandy. Well, let me let me tell you about that a little bit. A Radler is the German version of a shandy type of beer, like a beer and fruit juice or soft drink mix kind of thing. Let's try this and uh, see see how it is. Ooh, it's tart. Yeah, it's got that lemonade in it. I'll tell you what, it's hot as fuck where I am right now, like probably 90-something degrees, stuffed in this room with no ventilation and no fans going because I'm recording, right? That is a fucking perfect beer-type drink for a hot day or or if you're in a hot place. 2.5% alcohol, you're not going to get all fucked up on this. It's extremely refreshing. Like, I cannot tell you. Uh, Secretly, I've been drinking this beer since before I even started, and I'm still working on it, and it's ice cold. There's ice in it. I would definitely, if you do get this beer or a beer like it, put ice in it. It's fucking refreshing as hell. Truly a beautiful beer, once again brought to us by Plan 9 Ale House, my favorite beer-making people in the entire world. Definitely stay tuned for more information about how you yourself can enjoy a Plan 9 Ale House beer or food, any of the other wonderful things they have to offer right after I get finished talking here. We are also going to hear from Pomp's Not Dead Pomade in this episode. Yes, the working person's pomade. That's Pomp's Not Dead. Let me give you the specifics of what we're going to talk about before we get to it here. I'm going to talk about the history of the working person in the United States prior to Labor Day, kind of the story of how Labor Day came to be, how things improved for the working person in the United States after Labor Day, and a little bit about the labor movement throughout the history of the United States. I'll very briefly touch on unions in the 20th century up to today, near the end of the episode as well. Do you have a lot to cover? Let's get to it. Here are a few words from Plan 9 Alehouse, then the song I Still Struggle by Billy Lyre. Please stay tuned. Whether you've been working hard or hardly working this summer, I'd say it's time for you to take a break and let Plan 9 Alehouse take care of you with a great meal and the finest beer around to go with it. Go online to www.plan9alehouse.com and click on the Order Now cassette tape logo to see all the amazing food, desserts, beers, soft drinks, and more that Plan 9 has to offer. Plan 9 Alehouse also offers their world-famous sauces and seasonings for sale if you'd like to get that unbeatable Plan 9 Alehouse flavor at home. But wait! Plan 9 Alehouse delivers, as well as offering takeout and outdoor dining at their downtown Escondido location. Socially distant dining is now open in Plan 9 Alehouse's outdoor dining area. Just remember, a mask is required at Plan 9 Alehouse, so plan accordingly, please. Plan 9 Alehouse is located at 155 East Grand Avenue in Escondido, California. You can reach Plan 9 by phone at 760-489-8817 or on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. Don't delay. Order from Plan 9 Alehouse today. Well, when you met me, I was a mess. And 
first heard of Billy Liar at Fest 18 last year. I was meeting Misky from City Mouse for an interview, a City Mouse interview. Yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? She told me, meet me at Billy Liar's show that was on Fest Sunday morning. Uh, Fest Sunday morning, that is a pretty rough time. It's not a good time. Usually, uh, you know, things are a little jagged, a little, little on the not feeling so good side, I, I should say. I do not think I was in tip-top shape that morning. I'll leave it at that. What did perk me up on top of the coffee I was drinking was seeing Billy Liar play. Billy was doing an acoustic set, which I normally avoid like the plague. I'm sorry. No offense to anybody that does acoustic sets, but acoustic punk sets, usually eh, it's not my cup of tea, that kind of thing. Billy Liar is an exception, and there are other exceptions, but Billy, holy shit, it was great. I was really, really blown away. Billy Liar did one song that was about working and kind of the plight of making ends meet in today's world, and it hit me really hard standing there. I was just coming off of working for 16 years at a job that I really was having a hard time with, and at that time, I was thinking about my future and what am I going to do for money and this and that. I was kind of between jobs, that kind of thing. And the lyrics to the song, the words that Billy was singing, really hit hard. And of course, I babble on and on, so I will cut myself short and say I have loved Billy Liar ever since then, for sure. So that last song was the full band version of Billy Liar, and fucking hell, that was a goddamn great song, wasn't it? Oh, and a little aside, the song that I was just singing the praises about that Billy Liar does about working and how it really hit me and everything like that, that is going to be the very last song in this episode. So really make sure you stay tuned for that. It's a beautiful song. That last song by Billy Liar was as well. Billy Liar does have a full-length record out now on Red Scare Industries titled Some Legacy. That record comes very, very highly recommended by me. It is fucking great. There will be links on the podcast website for this episode that'll lead you to more Billy Liar stuff and how you can buy that record and more. Check it out, Billy Liar. Labor Day. To understand how Labor Day came about, we need to talk about the Industrial Revolution first. The Industrial Revolution created a lot of jobs in manufacturing. Obviously, it was all well, Industrial Revolution. Those jobs were filled by people who, prior to the Industrial Revolution, were mostly farmers, 
craftspeople, that kind of thing. Most of the things we use on a day-to-day basis as human beings, like clothing, shoes, furniture, books, you name it, were handmade piece by piece prior to the Industrial Revolution. And those things were made either by you and your family or by like a craftsperson. There was no mass production really prior to the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution did change the way that we live forever, absolutely, without a doubt. Now, I'm not going to get into the minutia of the history of things before the Industrial Revolution. Slavery through the ages, going way, way, way back. Serfdom. How did artisans support themselves? Like, how did Leonardo da Vinci make money? They must have had, like, some kind of royal support, or they were given an allowance or something like that, like a benefactor. I think that's how it worked. No matter what, we're not going to talk about that. We'll be here way, way longer than any of us want to be. Trust me when I say that, okay? What's important to our story in this episode, the labor movement and Labor Day itself, is what happened after the Industrial Revolution kind of got going. The Industrial Revolution started in the 19th century or the 1800s in Great Britain, roughly the 1830s or 1840s. This time period is known as the First Industrial Revolution. Steam power is credited with fueling that first period of mass production. Wool and cotton cloth were some of the first types of goods that moved from being produced in small workshops and or homes and into a factory type of setting. Iron and steel production during this first industrial revolution also was increased due to new production methods and also because of the demands of war and railroad construction. Steam power provided an efficient source of energy for production of iron and steel, powering machinery that made yarn and thread. But how did you produce steam? Well, with machines that were powered by coal, which coincidentally was able to be mined much more efficiently with steam-powered mining equipment. So, extract more coal with more efficient means of production compared to people just hacking away in a mine. Now they're using steam-powered drills. The demand for coal went way up, in order to produce goods in factories, to power railroads and steamships to deliver the goods that were produced in the factories. That's some fucking circle of life shit right there, isn't it? It truly is. As industrialization grew, people started moving from the country into the cities in both Great Britain, most of Europe, and the United States. Demand for workers, less demand for craftspeople and farmers, technological innovation was making handcrafting goods and farming much less arduous, much less work was involved in those things. And there was also a much lower demand for handcrafted goods. Those people that did those things, those farmers, those those craftspeople, they needed a way to make a living, and a factory job in the city did provide just that. Small towns with factories grew into large cities over the course of time due to factory worker populations. Here's where shit starts to get fucked, okay? Crowded and horrible living conditions in these cities, pollution everywhere that these people living in these cities worked in, there was no clean water, the list goes on and on and on. Economic conditions were great. If you were a factory owner or manager, that is, the middle class began to rise and the rich got massively richer during that first industrial revolution, but the average worker was Fucked. Absolutely fucked. The second industrial revolution, that's a period of time from the late 1800s into the early 1900s, saw the beginning of true mass production in factories, especially of consumer goods. Candy, soap, clothing, you name it, a factory was making it during the second industrial revolution. 
Let's go back just a little bit. During both the first and second industrial revolutions, people in the United States who had grown up making their own hours, living by the light of the sun, essentially moved into these cities, started working in factories and had to adapt to being told what to do and when to do it. And they lived by a clock versus a light of day. That's, I just wanted to note that that's a huge, huge fucking adjustment. Oh, and, and I haven't even talked about the kids that worked in these factories during the industrial revolution, all periods of the industrial revolution. No, I haven't even gotten to that yet. Oh yeah. Cause that shit's really fucked during the industrial revolution. People, men, women, and children worked in factories as much as 17 hours a day, six days a week, little kids. I'm talking really little kids, sometimes as young as four years old worked on machines in factories that adults were too big to effectively work on. Have you ever seen the movie Snowpiercer? Do you remember there's a scene kind of close to the end of the movie where there's a little kid crammed into this tiny crawl space in the machinery of the engine of the Snowpiercer train? That's what they did to little kids during the Industrial Revolution. Little Johnny, fucking little five-year-old Johnny, is lubing the gears on this huge machine that's still running and operating while he's working on it because, God forbid any kind of safety protocol, stop the machine so the kid can lube the fucking gears, right? Uh, uh, pull a stop, pull a lever, Clancy. Yeah, that shit didn't happen. They're like, no, kid, crawl under this machine, go climb up in between, all this shit. Oh, yeah, don't fuck around, though, because you'll get sucked into it and die. Be really careful. Uh, they probably didn't even tell him to be really careful, honestly. Go back there and lube this thing. Oh, you know, your sleeve gets caught in this moving gear. Ah, oh, fuck, there goes your arm. That shit happened all the time. And what happened when you would get injured working in a factory during the Industrial Revolution? Uh, you're fucked. You can't work because you're fucked up. No recourse from your employer. Typically, they had no medical services for you, would not give you any aid or help or try and help you find a new job. Nothing like that. You were fucked. You were like a beggar. If you were a little kid they'd probably send you off to an orphanage or something like that because your parents couldn't afford to take care of you. So you were fucked. On top of all that misery, in these factories, normally there were no windows. All these machines created a ton of heat, all these moving parts, all these moving metal parts. No windows, super fucking hot. You're working 14 to 17 hours a day, something like that. The pay was fucking horrible. The average wage for adult males working in industrial revolution era factories was around 10 cents an hour. Women and children made less than that because, of, oh, fuck, of course they did. Yeah, why not? Of course. All the shittiness, all that shitty stuff I just mentioned so far did lead to the creation of the labor movement. Actually, there's labor movement stuff prior to the industrial revolution the first recorded strike by organized labor in the United States was in 1768. That strike happened in New York, where journeymen tailors were protesting wage reductions. The first union in the United States was the Federal Society of Journeymen Cordwainers, or shoemakers. That was in Philadelphia in 1794. By the late 1800s, there were a few fairly large labor unions active in the United States. The Knights of Labor the Central Labor Union, and the American Federation of Labor are three of those unions. Those unions existed to make life better for the average worker in some ways. Reduced hours, better pay, medical care through the company, better working conditions, getting rid of child labor, that kind of thing. Also, Labor Day. 
Labor Day. That was going to be a day to celebrate the American labor movement and worker. A day off from work to take in a parade and go to a picnic put on by one of those labor unions. Uh, great. In the next part of this episode, we are going to talk more about how Labor Day became a holiday. For now, though, here is a song by the Drowns of Seattle, Washington, titled One More Pint. I hope you enjoy. The drowns, the drowns are fucking tight. 
That song, By the Drowns, is off the full-length record, Under Tension, and that record was released in January of 2020. Under Tension is available through the Drowns Bandcamp website. Links will be up on this episode's page on the Bobcast web experience or webpage. Labor Day as a holiday was first celebrated in Oregon in 1887 as a public holiday. Then Labor Day became an official federal holiday in 1894. But only 30 states out of 44 states in 1894 actually celebrated the holiday. That's not too bad. I guess 30 out of 44. The actual official origin of Labor Day isn't really that clear. That is to say, there isn't one specific person that Labor Day can be traced back to and say, that's the person that came up with Labor Day. Two people are credited with possibly being the proposers of Labor Day. Peter J. McGuire of the American Federation of Labor and Matthew McGuire of the Central Labor Union. Very similar last names, too. What is known as this, the Haymarket Riots in Chicago in 1886 definitely had something to do with the founding of Labor Day, as well as a strike by the American Railroad Union in mid-1894, which crippled nationwide railway traffic. And so, oh shit, Congress sees these two big things happen, the Haymarket Riots and the American Railroad Union strikes, and they passed an act which made Labor Day a legal holiday, which then President Grover Cleveland signed into law on June 28, 1894. It was a bone. Essentially, They're throwing the labor movement and the people, the working people of the United States, a bone. Labor Day essentially was given to the American worker to kind of get them to calm down and shut up. This is how I see it. Congress knew workers were fed up about the working conditions they endured. And these workers were in some cases willing to die for better working conditions and more workers' rights. That's a dangerous situation to be in politically People who are willing to die for a cause are not going to put up with your shit for much longer. That's for sure. And we're kind of seeing that start to happen these days, too. So at the time, Congress and the president said, well, here, let's give them this day off, you know, this little celebration of them and their their work, and maybe they'll shut up and go away. Sort of. There's a little bit more to that situation, for sure. Let's go back just a little bit and look at the Haymarket riots and the railway strike of 1894 for a few minutes, and that'll give this whole story of Labor Day a little bit more background. The Haymarket riot, or Haymarket affair, began with a rally attended mostly by workers on May 4th of 1886 in Chicago. During this peaceful rally, three people got up and spoke. August Spies, editor of the German-language newspaper Arbeiter Zeitung, or Workers' Times, Albert Parsons, he was the editor of The Alarm, a weekly, somewhat radical newspaper, and Samuel Fielden, an English socialist. The crowd on that day was said to be anywhere from 600 to 3,000 people. As the day was ending and the final speaker, Samuel Fielden, was finishing up, a shit ton of cops showed up and ordered the crowd to disperse. Now, keep in mind, the entire event on this day was peaceful. There were already cops there in and around the audience. There were no issues up to this point. It's 10.30 p.m. This massive army of cops show up, and they tell everybody, get the fuck out of here. The cops start to advance towards the people attending the rally, and someone in the crowd of workers attending the rally threw a homemade bomb at the cops. Uh, is it, I think that's what they call fucked around and found out. 
these days, isn't that how the kids on the internet would describe this situation? Yeah, in some ways. That bomb killed seven cops right away, and in retaliation for being bombed, the cops just started shooting. Four of the rally goers were killed by gunfire from the police cops, and at least 70 were wounded. The number of wounded on the side of the labor rally attendees is unknown because most of the injured wouldn't seek medical treatment for fear of reprisals from the police. Well, 60 police officers were wounded in the aftermath of the bomb, and it sounds like they were pretty much mostly wounded by friendly fire. The fucking cops were going nuts. They were shooting into the crowd of workers. They were shooting at anything that moved, which uh, included many fellow police officers as well. Long story short, the Haymarket Affair drew strong condemnation from national mainstream newspapers, calling all the labor union people anarchists and terrorists, that kind of shit. A trial was held. Several people were hung for their quote-unquote part in the plot to bomb the police. Years later, some of those people who were executed were posthumously cleared of any type of crime. Look into that story. I don't want to go into too much detail because it's a very convoluted story. It deserves a lot more attention than I'm giving it right now, the Haymarket Affair. The point here is, in some ways, after the Haymarket Affair, labor unions grew much stronger, a, a lot stronger. Membership, like, quadrupled for some unions. It was crazy. Almost the opposite effect of what the press and the police were trying to do, to paint all these people, all these union members as anarchist thugs, right? Hmm, sounds really fucking familiar, doesn't it? It really does. Black Lives Matter? Antifa? Uh, yeah. This country has always had issues with shitty fucking police and Pinkerton thug types. And so Pinkerton thugs or Pinkerton security, whatever the fuck you want to call them, were hired by factory owners to bust strikes, to infiltrate unions, two more to beat the shit out of workers, to keep them in line. Fucking horrible people. Oh, it sounds a lot like MAGA types to me, doesn't it? Fucking sh There's always been shitty, horrible fucking police and anti-union types in this country. The only difference I want to kind of note in the case of the MAGA, like Trump supporting twat militia fuckheads, those people, they do the shit Pinkerton people did for free. They're fucking stupid, aren't they? <laughs> like, seriously, that's the only thing that anybody with any kind of sanity in this country has going for them right now is all those MAGA fucking dudes. They're fucking stupid as shit. So note that. Yes, definitely note that. One other thing worth mentioning about the Haymarket affair is they still don't know who actually threw the bomb that killed those seven police at the very beginning of this thing. They think it's some kind of a renegade labor union member. That would be the most likely culprit. They also thought it might have been a Pinkerton guy that did it. They don't know for sure. The most likely suspect would have been kind of this rogue worker that was like, I'm just going to go kill some fucking cops if they cause any trouble. And that's exactly what happened. But that bomber was never actually identified. On to the National Railroad Strike of 1894, or as they call it, the Pullman Strike. That was another factor that did lead to the creation of Labor Day as a holiday. The Pullman strike went on from May 11th to July 20th of 1894, and that was a huge turning point for labor law in the United States. This is also a big story. I'm just going to give kind of the major details and move on with this. 
what set off this strike was a reduction in wages of 4,000 Pullman Company employees, while the cost of the rents in the company housing that these workers lived in did not go down, their wages did. They were getting fucked. These workers were severely getting fucked. Kind of par for the course, it seems, right? Yes, indeed. The American Railway Union got involved in the strike, and at the strike's peak, 250,000 railway workers were involved nationwide. Rail travel west of Detroit was more or less impossible, as well as moving goods west of Detroit at that time. That led to the federal government getting involved, and they sent troops in to break up the strike. Thousands of U.S. Marshals and 12,000 Army troops were sent out all over the country to force the railroad workers involved in the strike to cease the disruptions in rail service. In all, during this strike, 30 workers were killed and four members of the Army died as well. Now, these people in the Army died in a train crash, not directly by action from any of the strikers. Then a certain General Graham came forth and said these four soldiers died by sabotage that was done to a bridge by striking workers, which was never proven. General Graham Cracker rose a monument to the fallen hero soldiers, an obelisk in the Presidio of San Francisco, which simply states murdered by strikers. Mur yes, murdered by strikers. That monument does stand to this day. Fucking bullshit. Even back then, Big business shitheads, if they didn't like something, they try to sway public opinion against things that would directly benefit most of those same people, most of the public. The United States has been fucked up from its very origins. Absolutely. No doubt. I rant and rave about it because I care about the place that I live because I want it to be a better place for everyone who lives here. And I mean that everyone who lives here. Not just people like me, everybody. That's why I complain about it. I want to get that off my chest so you understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm sure I will get another, if you don't like the United States, why don't you just fucking leave message like I did the, in the July 4th episode that I did. So yeah, there you go. Well, the strike ended. Rail service started back up again. President Cleveland, along with Congress, threw a conciliatory day off to the labor movement in the form of Labor Day. Big fucking deal. Jesus Christ. Let's take a little break. We'll hear a few words from our friends at Pomp's Not Dead Pomade, the working person's pomade, then a song by Chicks Diggit titled Quit Your Job. Stay tuned. Do you have problem hair? Maybe humidity is making wavy, frizzy hair an issue in your life. Do you have dry and lifeless hair? Or do you just like to look your best? If any of those things are concerns of yours, let me present you with the solution. Pomp's Not Dead Pomade. Yes, Pomp's Not Dead Pomade can tame the waviest, frizziest hair, can breathe new life into the driest of hair. Pomp's Not Dead Pomade was founded in 2012 by Edwin Carson at his home in Houston, Texas. Growing up listening to punk rock and hardcore, Edwin takes inspiration from his favorite bands and ties them into his products. Pomp's Not Dead Pomade is homemade in small batches to ensure the highest quality pomade that money can buy. With pomade varieties such as Shea Halud, a water-based medium to firm hold pomade, to my favorite, Jet Set Alexa, a medium hold oil-based pomade, you can't go wrong when choosing Pomp's Not Dead Pomade for your hair management needs. 
Where can you purchase this fine pomade? I am glad you asked. Simply go to the Pomps Not Dead website at www.pompsnotdeadpomade.com and click on the products button to browse the selection of pomades or you can go to www.etsy.com and search for Pomps Not Dead Pomade to browse the Etsy shop. Either way, you'll be looking good in no time with Pomps Not Dead Pomade. Thank you to Chick Stiggett for that song. I have loved Chick Stiggett since the late 90s. And that song you just heard is off of the 1998 classic record Born on the 4th of July. That record has been reissued, by the way, and there are five bonus tracks on this reissue, the 2013 reissue of that record. You can get it at the Chick Stiggett Bandcamp site. Links on this episode's page of the Bobcast webpage. Labor Day, as I was saying, became an official federal holiday as of June 28, 1894. Labor Day does always fall on the first Monday of September in the United States and in Canada. Note that so you don't miss your big day off. Uh, If you even get it off, that is, who knows? Service industry people usually do not get Labor Day off, it seems like. That's kind of prime vacation time for so many people. COVID has changed that a little bit, of course. I think there should be like a service industry Labor Day or something like that. Or fuck it, just close everything down on Labor Day. Put your money where your mouth is. If if we're going to have a Labor Day, like a day of rest, a day of celebration for people who work and make this country what it is, give everybody the day off. Shut fucking every single thing down in the country, in the United States, in Canada. We can get by. You can stock up on beer barbecue shit, whatever you need to do. That's what we should do. Everything should shut down. That's what I think. So the big question here really is what changed for the average working person in the United States after Labor Day became an official holiday? Anything besides getting this day off? Did the eight hour workday also come into effect? Why don't we take a closer look at when some of the key provisions of the labor movement became law in the United States. The first one up is child labor laws. The first law prohibiting children under 14 from working became a law in the United States in 1916, but that was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1918, because of course it was. Then in 1924, Congress tried to amend the Constitution that would allow for the regulation of children under 18 in the workforce. But not enough states signed off on it to ratify it to make it part of the Constitution. Because, of course, finally in 1938, the United States Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which regulates the employment of those under the age of 16 or 18 years old, except in agriculture. Agricultural labor is excluded from the FLSA, and as a result, a half of a million children pick almost a quarter of the food crops that are produced in the USA today, in 2020, not 
50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago in 20 fucking 20. Hold on a second. What? Really? I, what? Wow. Okay. Except in Arkansas, by the way, Arkansas has a child labor law that passed by vote of the people of the state of Arkansas in 1994 that absolutely prohibits children under 14 from working in any way, shape, or form. Good job, Arkansas, truly. And Arkansas has a ton of regulations on what a 14 to 16-year-old kid can do in the workplace, and it's not much. Limited hours, limited types of work, specifically geared towards making little kids work in a factory type of setting. Good job, Arkansas, truly. So the crazy takeaway here is kids under 16 years old can still be used as farm labor in the United States. That's fucking crazy. To be clear, most of that labor is supposed to be on a family farm type of situation, you know, where your kids are doing chores for you working on the farm, helping you milk the cows, pull weeds, that kind of thing. Okay, no big deal. However, I have a funny and weird feeling that a whole lot of children of undocumented immigrants or immigrants are in slave labor type of situations where they're doing that 16, 17-hour day of backbreaking labor when they're like 10 fucking years old. That bears looking into. We don't have time to address it right now, but that definitely bears looking into. God, that's fucked. Truly fucked. What about the eight-hour workday? That became a law in 1940. The Fair Labor Standard Act of 1938 was amended in 1940 to reduce the work week from 44 hours to 40 hours. Prior to 1938, nationally, there were no laws for all industries in the United States, just some industries. The railroads, they got an eight-hour workday in 1917. Overtime laws were also part of the FLSA, as I'm going to refer to the Fair Labor Standard Act here from here on out. It seems like the FLSA of 1938 did change many aspects of workplace regulation for the better, for sure. The minimum wage came about, overtime pay, the 40-hour work week in 1940, and prohibiting the employment of minors in oppressive child labor was part of the FLSA. That's good stuff. But in 1938, wow, what the fuck? I told you Labor Day was a sham, total fucking sham, this like bobble that was presented to organized labor saying, see, we do care about you. We truly do. <coughs> bullshit. Uh, bullshit. 44 years after Labor Day became a holiday, all those normal things that we're kind of used to at this point as being fair and ethical, it took them 44 years to do that shit. Wow. Worth noting here, too, the U.S. government did start to monitor workers' hours in the 1890s. And guess what? The average work week for full-time manufacturing jobs in the 1890s when they started monitoring this stuff was 100 hours a week. Most of those manufacturing jobs were six days a week, too. You got to get your Jesus on Sunday, you know? Yep, there you go. That's almost 17 hours of work a day, and that's fucking insane. That gives you how many hours to sleep? I guess it all depends on how long it takes you to get home and then back to work. What, like four or five hours, something like that? That's fucking crazy. What's more insane than that, though, to me, is the fact that the government didn't really step in until 1938 to change things. Like I said, some industries were regulated prior to the FLSA, but I'm sure that 100-hour work week 
was definitely going on up until 1938 in some places. Yeah, for sure. Land of the free and home of the overworked. Jesus Christ, that's the United States. Another little perspective thing or something that's worth mentioning. My last job, I worked an average of 50 hours a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, for 16 years. The job I had prior to that, I was doing about 60-hour work weeks for a few years. And God damn it, I just got to say this. It is so not worth killing yourself to make a living in this godforsaken country. It really is not. That's what it takes, though. It's so sad. It's truly sad. Well, before we clock out of this episode, let's take a very brief look at how unions are a part of the working person's life of today. The highest percentage of people that belonged to a union in the history of the United States was in the year 1954, and that was 35% of all American workers were in unions in the year 1954. The highest number of people that were in a union in the United States peaked in 1979 at 21 million workers. As of 2019, the percentage of workers in a union in the United States was 10.3% or 14.6 million people. Those numbers are a little misleading as far as the total number of people in unions. Take into consideration the population of the United States in 1979 was 225.1 million people. In 2019, it was 328.2 million people, right? You get it? Uh Uh-huh. See how that kind of that ratio, how much of a change that is? That's crazy. And to me, union membership and how much those numbers have dropped since the 1950s, since 1954, when that peak percentage of American workers was in a union compared to now, that paints a pretty big picture of how fucked most workers are. But why unions? What's so great about a union, right? One thing that makes unions great is the fact the average union worker makes 33% more money than a non-union worker in the same field. And that is fucked. Same job, less pay. The union is the bridge in that gap of wage fuckery. Or so it seems to me. So what happened to unions? Why are unions so few and so weak now? Oh, I'll tell you what. Reagan and his shitty presidency did definitely have a lot to do with that. But so did McCarthyism during the 1950s and the Red Scare. The whole commie scare, right? Industry in the United States has also shifted considerably from manufacturing to service and healthcare related jobs. What a topic that is, Ronald Reagan. I should do a Ronald Reagan special on the day of his death because all humans should have rejoiced on that day because that dude was fucking evil as shit. You think Trump's bad? Eh, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. They're fucking both horrible, shitty people. But Reagan was bad. And Reagan and his administration had a lot to do with killing unions and also changing the public opinion of unions, for sure. I mean, hell, my parents voted for Ronald Reagan twice, even though my mother was in a union. And it was very, very well known at the time that Reagan and all his asshole buddies were trying to kill unions. They hated fucking unions. And here we go full circle. We have Trump, the same situation People that are going to benefit the least from having a guy like Trump in office voted for him in droves. Same thing with Reagan. People in this fucking country will do whatever they can to fuck themselves, it seems, when it comes to politics, for sure. I do think that on the whole, we've always been kind of idiots. 
in this country, right? Voting against our best interests, kind of biting our noses off to spite our faces. We're kind of a nation of morons in some ways. That's, that's a very broad general statement. But when we get these shitty presidents like Reagan and Trump that completely try and destroy like the foundations of America and what makes America a good country, these assholes come in and just start tearing it apart so them and all their friends can make all kinds of money and people stand there waving their little fucking MAGA flag. Oh, look at me. Fuck yeah, man, America. You know, there's a lot to that. I don't want to get into it right now. It just pisses me off. And I don't want to start ranting for another fucking half hour because I'm sure you have better things to do. Well, I do hope you learned something about the history of Labor Day and organized labor in the United States in this episode in a very small way. This was a very, very condensed version of the histories of organized labor and Labor Day in the U.S., but there it is. A huge thanks to the bands of this episode, Billy Liar, The Drowns, and Chicks Dig It. There will be links on the episode page of the Bobcast website to get to all their stuff. Support those bands if you can. Billy Liar, holy shit, I'm going to say it again. I've only ever seen him play solo and acoustic. The full band, Billy Liar, is so goddamn good. Truly great I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Chicks Dig It. By the way, the Drowns are kind of new to me in some ways. I just started listening to them not too long ago. They're a fucking great band. Absolutely incredible and perfect for this episode about Labor Day and working stuff. Thanks again to all the fine people who let me use music in this episode. Thank you to this episode's sponsors, Plan 9 Alehouse and Pomp's Not Dead Pomade. Both are independent and hardworking businesses that have made my world a better place. They can do the same for you if you would give them a shot. Lastly, thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate you for listening to this episode and making my world a better place just by being you. I'm going to leave you with the Billy Liar song, Independent People. Until next time, enjoy. My dad said things are gonna get worse. A long time before they get better I hope he's wrong, but I know he's right Thatcher's children are in government A coalition now is Cameron's bread It was his for the taking Unemployment's an all-time high We're all depressed Stay inside, we'll block out reality with reality television. But bread and circuses won't pay the rent. We're struggling just to make ends meet, and it'll be the same again next week. So, this is what we've got independent people. With independent thought So this is our law If you thought it was okay Well, no, it's not He was sorry, son 
You know the order really had to let go of someone He said I'll find a new job in no time But it's the same everywhere that I look There's no one playing by the book Temporary staff for temporary work We're all temporary Job satisfactory's an all-time low We stumble through a shift Just wait to go home We'll drink away our wages And then stagger home alone But these wages can't even pay the bills We're taking our loans on top of loans If I think about it for too long I feel ill Or been worked from birth till death and paid a purse as an hourly rate. We're supposed to be satisfied with the thought that we could reach our supervisor's place. Or maybe we could win the lottery. Or be pop stars or footballers' wives. I don't know about you, but I want to feel. This is what we've got Independent people With independent thought So this is our lot If you thought it was okay Well, no, it's not So this is what we've got